Welcome to the Bible Feed podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. Welcome everybody to the Bible Feed podcast. My name is Lawrence and we are continuing our mini-series today on the history of early Christianity. I'm joined again um, by our friend Stephen. Um, Hello again and... uh, Can you just take us through what we're going to be covering uh, in today's session? Hi, Lawrence. Uh, In this podcast, we're going to explore how persecution has played a major role in the history of early Christianity. I appreciate this might sound like quite a somber topic, uh, but what we will see is that there are actually some incredibly powerful and positive points to be gleaned from looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll try and keep it upbeat during today's podcast. Uh, Maybe you could give us a brief outline of what we're looking at. Sure. So we'll start off by looking at the persecution that Jesus taught about and, of course, experienced uh, in his life. Being a disciple of Jesus has amazing rewards, but it also involves significant cost. Um, Next, we will consider a shocking episode of persecution carried out by Emperor Nero in the first century AD and see what relevance this has to the truth of the gospel message. Finally, we will consider the great persecution carried out by Emperor Diocletian in the 4th century AD. And we'll see that an incredible turn of events took place to bring that particular uh, period of persecution to an end. Excellent. Thank you very much. And as we can see from that, the, um, the aspect of persecution is part of the lived experience of Christianity right from early on. So, so maybe what we'll do is we'll start with that first um, topic you were looking at and, and talking about what Jesus taught about uh, persecution. Uh, where do we start? I think it'd be good to look at a passage from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so it's in Luke 21. Uh, if you wouldn't mind reading that for us, please, Lawrence. Yeah, sure. So Luke 21, starting at verse 9. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated uh, by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance will you gain your lives. So what what, what are we reading about there? What is that uh, telling us? Mm, what is going on here? Uh, so this is part of Jesus's famous Olivet Prophecy, Mount Olivet Prophecy. Uh, it's a fascinating prophecy, but also it's very complex. Um, so I can only give a sort of brief summary here. Um, So basically, the disciples of Jesus were asking when the end of the Jewish nation was going to take place. Uh, Jesus told them that there would be lots of signs from heaven, uh, indicating that the end end was near the end of the Jewish nation. And he provided a very stark warning for his followers that they would be persecuted. 
Uh, so they'd be hated by all, they'd be betrayed by family members. Some of them would even be put to death. Uh, so he's really warning them about what was going to happen before the end uh, was going to come. Okay, thank you for explaining that. And it was really clear from that passage in Luke that it seems really dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. Or when I say dangerous, it wasn't you know a club that you join and you get all of these benefits you know um you know immediately there would be difficulties that they would that they would experience and jesus you know laid it out very clearly that that would be the case and that they needed to to um give testimony to his name as well and use an opportunity to give testimony to his name mm. Do we have um, any record of Jesus' prophecies about uh, persecution um, coming upon his followers? Is, uh, does he prophesy about th this? Yes. Uh, so we do have a record um, of some of the persecution that Jesus' followers uh, experienced. So that's in the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, a book found in the New Testament. Um, so we can read of how Jesus' disciples were, in fact, persecuted, just as Jesus predicted. Uh, so some of them were put in prison, some of them were put to death. Uh, and these things happened before the end of the Jewish nation, which uh, by and large took place in, in AD 70. Uh, so with this prediction of Jesus, this prophecy of his coming to pass, uh, Jesus gave us reason to believe that he was a prophet, someone who could uh, foretell uh, future events. Um, so it'd probably be good to have a look at an example. Would you mind reading from Acts chapter 7, please, Lawrence? Yeah, absolutely. Which one of the prophets um, did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen uh, as he called on the, uh, on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Thank you, Lawrence. So it's a, it's a very moving passage, isn't it, about uh, a man called Stephen, and he was passionately preaching the gospel, and he actually ended up doing this at the expense of his life. Yeah, so we see this, don't we? Like This is like first century. The gospel is only just starting to, so, to gather pace, being spread around uh, to different nations. But even here... We've got this persecution and death, this martyring already starting as a result of people propagating this message about Jesus. Mm. So, so why were these? Why were they uh, persecuted? What was it that was causing people to rise up against these Christians? Well, on this occasion, it was the the Jewish authorities. Um, so they rejected Jesus's claim to be the Messiah. They they persecuted Jesus uh, and ended up uh, putting him to death. Uh, so they, they loved their positions of power. Uh, so religion was a huge 
deal uh, in the first century in ancient Israel and belief in Jesus was it was a threat to them. Uh, so the more people followed Jesus and believed him to be the Messiah, um, the less power, respect and influence these Jewish rulers had. So life was pretty comfortable for them being the, the kind of religious elite. Um, and it was bad news if people were believing not in them, essentially, and, and their way of, of practicing religion, but uh, choosing to believe in Jesus instead. It was a, a threat to them. So in this in this occurrence, we've, we're seeing the persecution of the Christians coming from um, basically their, their, you know, the same culture and background as they were coming from, you know, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and the people who held on to the kind of the law of Moses and everything that that, you know, had surrounded, um, you know, you know, that, that, that surrounded it. So, so maybe we can now um, think about other sources of persecution. Um, and you mentioned a couple at the beginning in your structure. Um, so let's move on to maybe another another source of persecution other than the Jewish rulers. Yeah, okay. So there was another one, uh, again, in the, the first century AD, uh, but this was uh, Emperor Nero, the Roman Emperor Nero. So he initiated a persecution of Christians, and that took place from AD 64 to AD 68. So that timescale, we're, we're actually still in the timescale of the Bible there, aren't we? We're looking, we're looking at the kind of the time of the letters of Paul the Apostle, etc., and Revelation and things like that. So we're still very close to... Jesus being around, those apostles delivering this message. Mm, absolutely. So you've got persecution coming from firstly the Jewish rulers, but also um, not long after coming from, from elsewhere as well. the background behind this persecution why, why was Nero against the Christians so I'm going to quote now from a historian called Roger Collins uh, he wrote a book on the history of the papacy and he, he wrote about the the persecution by Emperor Nero so he wrote in AD 64 during the reign of the Emperor Nero a great fire destroyed much of the center of Rome According to the historian Cornelius Tacitus writing a generation later the populace believed the Emperor had started the fire and so, to divert attention from himself, Nero initiated a persecution of Christians. Not, however, apparently for arson. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. And then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for incendiarism as for their antisocial tendencies. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutions for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled with the crowd or stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. I mean, that is just awful. I mean, that, the things that they endured at that time. You know, we just you just can't comprehend that. I mean, you know, absolutely tragic. And it seems like um, Emperor Nero blamed Christians for starting the Great Fire of of Rome just to take attention away from himself. And 
that these deaths described were really awful, so cruel. Absolutely. So uh, for whatever reason, the the general uh, populace thought that that he'd started the fire and uh, he was willing to do these cruel this cruel persecution of Christians just to to save his own skin. Really, and that really shows what type of person Emperor Nero was. Uh, so he inflicted these excruciating um, executions and these these truly horrific ways, um, and he, he seemed to really take great pleasure and amusement um, in these these really vindictive act- actions. So uh, it's quite disturbing, really, uh, what we just read there. Yeah, and I think you know it goes back to some of those words that we read in Luke um, about what Jesus warned would come, um, and these people by Nero were almost thought of being subhuman like to treat them in that way they were really very very disturbing so anyway enough about Nero um let's let's move on from that very strange character and let's think about the Christian martyrs um at that time yes good idea um so although considering this topic of persecution is is very sad it is very somber uh, there are also really incredibly positive points that can be taken from the example of these these Christian martyrs, uh, their example of dying for their faith in Christ. Um, so personally, I find it so humbling and inspiring uh, that so many followers of Jesus were were willing to to suffer these these horrendously painful deaths uh, because they were so devoted uh, and because they were convinced that what they believed was true. Yeah, and I think um, if we listen to some of the other podcasts that we've had in previous series is around the resurrection, that's also one of the evidences that the resurrection is true is because people held this belief, they were um, very sincere about holding this belief and it wasn't held for their own benefit and therefore that adds weight to the fact that it was really true that Jesus died and was resurrected. Uh, so evidence of the truth of Christianity really early on um, in, in the um, experiences of, of, the, of the followers of Christ. But the question is, you know, there's lots of different faiths that have died for their beliefs. It's not just Christians who have died for their beliefs. Others have as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what makes these martyrs of Christianity different? That's, uh, that's important to, to acknowledge. Lots of people have uh, given their lives in the past and people are giving their lives today uh, for their religion uh, that they uh, sincerely believe to be true. So it's a great question to ask what's so different about these, these early Christian martyrs. So I would say what sets them out as particularly special and, and interesting from a, a faith point of view is that their martyrdom occurred so close to the central claim of Christianity, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Um, so it's plausible uh, that some of these Christians who died in Nero's persecution were alive at the time of Jesus. So some of them may have even seen the risen Jesus. Uh, we don't know that uh, for sure. There's no record of that. Um, just stating that it's possible uh, based on uh, when Jesus was around and when Nero's persecution took place. Um, so... If Christianity is essentially a lie, so if the early disciples of Jesus knew for certain that uh, Jesus hadn't really been raised from the dead, uh, maybe they just hid his body, for example, um, it doesn't make any sense why people would be willing to give their lives uh, for this lie. Um, So to quote Gary Habermas, uh, who wrote the excellent book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, uh, he wrote, Liars make poor martyrs. 
liars make poor martyrs. Um, so if the early Christians knew that Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, uh, do you really think they would be willing to be torn to pieces by dogs or, or set on fire? Uh, of course not. Uh, they would have just instantly recanted their beliefs, admitting that it was all a lie. Uh, so I'd say what sets these martyrs apart is that they died within the, the central claim of Christianity, a claim that they clearly, uh, passionately believed to be true and were therefore willing to give their lives for. And if they, they were so uh, convinced that it was true, uh, we have to ask ourselves, or we can ask ourselves the question, why? Why were they so uh, convinced that it was true? And I suggest that's because of the uh, the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. That's that's a great summary, uh, Stephen. Thank you. And and I think um, that's something that we have we've we've covered a couple of times in our in our podcast series. And I think that idea of of them being so close to the events, the witnesses, and and the the sincerity of their held beliefs. You know, it meant that they they really sincerely um, held these beliefs. And then you put that evidence together with other pieces of evidence, and you start to build a really strong case for for the resurrection of um, of of Jesus. So, um, lots of positive uh, things to look at from a really dark period of of. Um, history of christianity and you know suffering a lot at the hands of, of nero and those associated with him which is good so this that's the kind of the second part that we looked at we looked at jesus and uh, we looked at nero and we said that we would look at um some events in at the time of of uh, diocletian so maybe we can move on to that now yeah sure so um the emperor diocletian uh, started in 303 ad so right at the start of the fourth century um, so it was, it was quite a long persecution and there's, um, a large number of Christians believed to have, have perished in it. Um, and because of that, it has become known as the Great Persecution. It continued under his successors as well, uh, but with differing kind of degrees of enthusiasm, if you like, across the empire. Then, um, this persecution, the Great Persecution came to an end in 312 and 313 AD. So it lasted about nine or ten years, and and thousands of Christians died in it. Yeah, and I was I was doing some uh, reading as part of my preparation for this this session, and it was um, describing the way in which um, this great persecution started. Um, so you've got this uh, this east and west uh, um, splitting of of Rome, and Diocletian trying to work out why some of the oracles of his pagan gods were not working and he was told um that the reason was that some of the people in the congregation were crossing themselves and that it was it was disrupting the the oracles of these gods and as a result of that he then started dismantling churches killing the the clergy and that and the effect of that spread you know throughout the um, to varying degrees throughout the uh, the roman empire at the time you know as you got away from the kind of central portions of power i think the effects were less so when you get to to england it's slightly less they were starting to dismantle churches but not necessarily killing people but so but a huge impact isn't it from like an individual um having a problem with christianity and the ripple effect of persecution that comes from mm. from, from from that across across the then known world yeah horrendous period for for anyone who who lived through it or or sadly gave their lives for it
you said that it, it lasted for about 10 years. Uh, how did it? How did the Great Persecution come to an end? Well, it came to an end uh, due to one of the most amazing and the most unlikely events in all of history taking place, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so that would be that a Roman emperor actually converted to Christianity. So this is the the famous uh, conversion, and it's incredible, isn't it, that you've got like in AD sixty eight something like that we have um, Nero so against Christianity, and uh, now we're actually saying that a Roman emperor is converting to Christianity. Tell us about the circumstances around that. So I'll quote from uh, Collins's book again as he he uh, he spins this yarn well. Um, so beside a bridge over the Tiber just north of Rome, a battle was fought on 28th of October 312 AD that changed the history of Christianity. The outcome would also have a dramatic impact on the bishops of Rome, turning them into functionaries of the state that had long persecuted them. The relationship with the civil power, previously one of wary neutrality or occasional hostility, would be transformed as Christianity became the religion first of an emperor and then of the whole empire. The battle that had such far-reaching consequences was the product of rivalry between two of the four emperors then controlling the Roman world, part of a process that by 324 AD would see one of them, Constantine I, sometimes referred to as Constantine the Great, emerge as sole ruler of the empire. He was proclaimed emperor in York in 306 AD, controlling Britain, Gaul and Spain. He took the first step on that road by invading Italy, ruled by his brother-in-law Maxentius. Just before the battle at the Milvian Bridge, Constantine had a dream in which he was told to mark the heavenly sign of God on the shields of his soldiers. This was how the tutor to the emperor's son recorded the event three years later, by which time Constantine's conversion to Christianity had been publicly acknowledged. A decade later in the East, a far more elaborate account involving the vision of a cross in the sky that was also seen by some of his soldiers was published by one of the emperor's theological advisers. Despite contradictions, both narratives make the battle with Maxentius into the turning point in transforming Constantine into the first Christian emperor. There we go. And I think um, whatever commentator you read on this, there'll be slightly varying different accounts of kind of exactly how it happened. Was it was it uh, the dream or was it, did he actually turn to Christianity then or was he just friendly towards Christians? And I think um, the key thing is that in 312, there was a battle between Constantine I and his brother-in-law, Maxentius, to determine who would become the sole emperor. And this was... Um, you know, in a momentous event in Rome's history, and this battle in this battle, Constantine presumably had this this dream. He saw a vision, a vision, and took this as a sign to convert to Christianity. I think also he had some Christian uh, relatives as well. I think there was a, a some some relatives of his that were followers of Christianity. I think one of his family members was called Anastasis or something like that, which I believe is the word resurrection. Um, so there was a there was a link there between uh, Christianity and his family, and obviously this event was, you know, brought up as this momentous event in 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 Rome's history. And yeah, great news for Christians. Yeah, to begin with, it was certainly great news as uh, Constantine converting to to Christianity, he proclaimed uh, religious toleration uh, with something called the the Edict of Milan. 
Uh, so this brought about the, the end of the persecution that had taken place by Diocletian and his successors. Uh, so it's good news for, for Christians that the, the persecution uh, came to an end. Um, however, uh, the, the Roman emperor becoming Christian was a, a huge step in the direction of a, a state church. Uh, so it only actually took until 380 AD uh, for Christianity to be declared the only legitimate religion of the Roman Empire, uh, which again, if you said to someone in the, the first century AD, uh, or even at the, the start of the fourth century AD, uh, one day um, there's going to be a, a Christian Roman emperor, and, and one day Christianity will become the, the only legitimate religion of the empire. Um, it would have seemed so unbelievably uh, unlikely, but that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and that's like 70 or 80 years after the Great Persecution. So it's not long, is it? It's like the lifetime of a person, mm. and you've gone from like institutionally against Christianity to institutionally proclaiming Christianity as the religion. So massive switch there uh, between those, those two positions. Um, and we talked a little bit last time about this situation of the church state and this is like the beginning of that we talked about it when we were discussing baptism and it sounds like it's great news if you're a christian and you agree with the religion of the emperor but not so much if you don't so it was like if you follow the um the emperor's religion both with diocletian and with constantine everything was all goodness um but if you didn't <laughs> things were not so not so rosy yes so you, you might think that the Roman Emperor becoming Christian, that's that's just going to be great for, for Christians. But uh, as we'll see from this final quotation, that uh, might not have been the case if you didn't agree with his sort of uh, version of Christianity, if you like. So Theodosius, Emperor Theodosius, officially declared Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire on 27th of February 380 AD, thus bringing the movement begun by Constantine the Great full circle. The formerly persecuted sect now became a state church with the power and according to some the duty to suppress or control its rivals. A religious community once harboring diverse strands of belief became an orthodoxy committed to doctrinal unity and the extinction of heresy. And the loose decentralized organization of the earlier church gave way to a more hierarchical structure with power concentrating in the hands of a few great bishops. So with Constantine converting to Christianity and eventually the, the official religion of the Roman Empire changing to Christianity, uh, we're left with a situation that was extremely different from how Christianity started. And the question we might like to ask ourselves is whether we think this, this state church exercising power to persecute those they deemed to be heretics, etc., uh, was faithfully imitating the same religion as that which Jesus practiced. So obviously, by the way, I've framed that question. I think it was a very different religion uh, which was emerging here and sometimes showed itself to be the very antithesis of authentic Christianity. Um, so political power and, and status can bring out the very worst of human nature. Uh, just like we saw at the beginning with, with the Jewish rulers uh, persecuting the first Christians, their, their positions of power uh, led to great acts of evil uh, being committed. Um, and that was sometimes the case with this, uh, with the state church coming about. 
you know, just to to map the the rise of Christianity and in its and the changes in Christianity over over just those first two or three hundred years, we see a massive rise in popularity, and we see obviously these these moments of persecution. Uh, but in that kind of rise of popularity, it's obviously been been taken by the leadership of of the then known world and used as an instrument in order to to achieve you know political stability and and for people to be controlled so it's very different isn't it from that church which was in the you know in acts chapter 2 we learn about them going from house to house breaking bread and all in unity in one accord in acts chapter 2 you know this group of you know like three to five thousand people in jerusalem that start to to learn about the gospel and to respond to it and now we've got this enormous church state organizational structure with you know very hierarchical structure rather than these small pockets of autonomous you know controlled churches or ecclesias kind of you know dealing with their own particular problems very different very different um circumstances very different structures so yeah really interesting to take us through that thank you Stephen so on this journey we've been through uh, we've looked at uh, what Jesus um, told disciples about persecution we saw that actually happen we saw it happen in AD 70 we saw we saw the the persecution of Nero we saw the persecution of Diocletian we saw the rise of Christianity coming to this church state um, um, power but what lesson do we learn through through that journey through time so I would say that we learn from church history that certain actions have been carried out by those who profess to follow Christ uh, that aren't in keeping with his teaching or example. Um, so Jesus never encouraged his followers to, to gain political power, to start a state church or, or persecute those who, who didn't convert, uh, for example. The religion that Jesus taught about and practiced is found in the Bible, uh, predominantly in the New Testament. And that's why it's so important for us to, to value what the Bible teaches uh, if we want to, to follow the example of Jesus. Another way of describing that would be being a disciple of Jesus may sometimes involve being persecuted, uh, but it should never involve being the one doing the persecuting. Okay, that's that's a really good summary, Stephen. Um, thank you. And I think this idea of getting back to authentic Christianity and looking at the first century, uh, which was built on principles from the Old Testament, is is, you know, the same theme as we saw last time when we were looking at baptism. It's the same same theme coming through here, isn't it, with persecution and the development of the, the power structure around the state church. So thank you. So we look forward to the final episode in this series uh, with Stephen. And we're going to have a look at another aspect of the uh, the history of, the, of, of early Christianity. Uh, what are we going to be uh, covering next time, Stephen? So in the, the final episode in this mini-series, we will consider the organisation of the early church and ask the question, what did being a member of the church involve at the beginning of Christianity? And uh, we'll see that uh, that changed over time. Um, so the organisation of the church was run very differently. We've touched on that at the end of, of this episode, but it was very different um, right at the beginning okay great so we'll see that development right from the times of the apostles all the way through to our current time hopefully and um, learn some lessons i'm sure along the way 
So thank you very much uh, for leading us and guiding us through this this topic. My pleasure. So thank you everybody for for listening. Um, please subscribe on on Facebook and Instagram at Bible Feed uh, Online. Uh, go to our website, which is BibleFeed.org and um, let us know what your thoughts are on this topic on any future topics that you'd like to to hear us um, consider on the podcast thank you very much and see you next time you've been listening to the bible feed podcast thanks for joining us we're always keen to hear what you think hear your questions or subjects you'd like us to discuss get in touch with us on our facebook page or send a message from our webpage at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey.